Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to Julia Mossbridge of the Mossbridge Institute and lovingai.org. We talk about the roles of parenting in AI and how some children are jerks, um, new Turing test for AI responsibility, the importance of inner emotional states and how behaviorism has poisoned our insights into our psychology and the acknowledgement that we may have to use our intuition to know when an AI is conscious. So that and much more. If you'd like to support the Machine Ethics podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. We can find more episodes on the machine-ethics.net website. Or if you'd like to contact us, then email hello at machine-ethics.net. Thank you very much and hope you enjoy. Hi, Julia. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If you could uh, briefly introduce yourself and what do you do? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Um, my name's Julia Mossbridge. I do a lot of things. And one of the things, probably the reason you're talking with me is because I have a role as the um, founder and co-PI of the Loving AI project, which um, if you're interested about, mm-hmm. uh, if you're interested in, you can read more about at lovingai.org, but we'll also be talking about it a lot here, I imagine. Um, and I also do research on uh, time and unconditional love. Great. So thank you um, so much for coming on. It's a real honor. Um, like I said um, previously, as we were talking, I was uh, mentioned your name and I should get in contact with you. And I've obviously seen you um, before on YouTube and, and such. Um, so to all of our interviewees, we the first question we like to ask um, is what is AI? Yeah, what is AI? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... You know, it's, I forget who it was, but some AI person said that AI is whatever we don't, we feel is impossible at the time. And we discount anything that we could achieve. So, um, mm-hmm. for instance, 10 years ago, winning at Go against a human would be considered fantastic AI, you know? Yep. Now it's like, whatever, let's move on, you know? <laughs> so, so um I think AI, I think, I mean, I'm going to answer the question two ways, sort of what is it uh, in terms of its motivational status for human beings and what is it technically? So let's go with technically first. So technically Mm -hmm. AI is any kind of behavior of um, a programmed system that reminds us of human-like intelligence or human-like behaviors. So that's sort of the technical answer. Mm-hmm. And then the motivational answer is AI feels to me like humanity's chance to uh, reparent ourselves and create a new way of being with each other by uh, outsourcing that way of being, at least temporarily, so that it can parent us into people who can better be with each other. Mm, so that's, that sounds like a... I mean, those are great definitions, and that almost takes us into this kind of a lofty idealism of what hopefully AI could be for us in the future as a uh, species, almost. Good. Do you, do you think, I mean, that that sort of um, implies that we're not doing a very good job if we need shepherding in that way? You know, that's the first place people go into mm. um, how have we failed, and it just shows us that we're bad. Yep. And I don't, I don't care about that because it doesn't matter um, whether we have failed or whether we have succeeded or whether we're just doomed. 
none of that matters. What matters is our experience is that we have this perpetual problem where we don't know how to be with ourselves and we don't know how to be with each other as human beings in a way that's compassionate and kind and that works. And so um, that's what matters. And it doesn't matter how we got there because um, that knowing how we got there doesn't help us fix it. Mm. I think what helps us fix it is to work on the problem of AI. It's not, not the only way, but one of the ways is to work on the problem of AI in a way that I, mean, I honestly think this is, it's about getting people who generally don't think about these things like parenting and unconditional love and stuff to put them in a position where they have to think about them if they want to create ethical AI. So, mm. so if you think of, you know, if one brings up Microsoft's Tay, right? Yep. So Microsoft's Tay learned from its environment, yada, yada, and became a jerk. Um, and so like, what did we learn? Oh, it turns out you can't just like put a baby out on the street and be like, okay, grow up yourself. Right. Mm. Yep. All right. And we already know that but we didn't sort of get it that it also applies to AI. So I think we're starting to get it that the developmental psychology, the role of parenting in culture is going to go into a shift as we, we start taking it more seriously because it, it relates to something that costs a lot of money and can make a lot of money. So I think we're, what we'll see is this renaissance of understanding um, the value of parenting mm -hmm. of humans and um, that will be because of the money that goes into AI and the, and the parenting of the algorithms, especially artificially, generally intelligent algorithms, once we sort of have them. And I shouldn't even say algorithms in that context, but I should just say artificially, generally intelligent, um, general intelligence, AGI. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that there's a cultural shift that's going on. And it's really interesting to watch. But blaming ourselves like oh we suck because we couldn't figure this out without ai well you know it's not like you it's not like humanity is wrong because we couldn't figure out how to be warm without wearing clothes you know sometimes you need technology to um help you in ways that that you're just not naturally you don't spring out of the womb being able to to uh to create for yourself you know you need mm. someone who's good at making clothes to make you clothes so you could be warm. You need someone who's good at making a house or a, a shelter so that you could be away from the elements. And so AI is another technology that can potentially help us. But I think it's ex extremely important in a, in a sort of psychologically te technological sense, and by which I mean as a psychological helper mm -hmm. for us. Um, so, I mean, I have lots of questions um, there. So, <laughs> um, sure. I mean, that's um, let's let's start with that being the goal. I mean, if we could produce something which is able to develop and, and be parented in that way to then create um, this loving um, entity, let's say, mm -hmm. um, is there kind of a roadmap of where and like how we get to that? Because some people might say that it's quite a gulf uh, between now and now and and there or like maybe we don't necessarily know what that looks like yeah so there is a gulf right because mm. um instead of sort of programming something some some algorithm to be to behave as if it's loving compassionate mm. which of course will go wrong right because <laughs> yeah because they <laughs> There's a thousand ways that would go wrong, but one of them is like whomever's program programming the algorithm is is uh, sort of king or queen there. 
Yeah. Um, so that's a kind of a top-down sort of situation. Yeah. So the top-down approach is mm. not good. So the bottom-up approach is better. The problem is, of course, all of us are flawed in our capacity to express and experience unconditional love. So we sort of know what it feels like, but not how to get there. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's sort of a perfect problem for AI to solve. It's like um, sticking an AI system on, you know, how do we how do we deal with um, managing water resources in the world in the next 10 years. Like we don't, we know what it would look like if they were well managed, but we don't know how to manage water. Right. So it's similar. So, um, I kind of like that, but no, yeah, of course, with all the good questions, there's no roadmap. There's sort of inklings of, okay, well, we have to move towards something like AGI where the thing can learn in in a sort of human ish, human esque human like way. And we sort of get that we're going to have to combine multiple um, different types of AI, obviously, because if it's going to be anything like a human intelligence or operate in the way that we can sort of anticipate, um, it's going to have to be built like the human brain, which is a hack and includes a bunch of different styles and and ways of communicating and, and being intelligent, being creative. And it's going to have to involve lots of understanding of developmental psychology and um and growth and human psychosocial spiritual interactions uh, that are cross-cultural because um there there must be some openness to to that so what approach like so one really basic approach is to um, start off with feeding a bunch of the world's wisdom traditions um, into an ai but of course, what you get there is just a lot of garbage because there's no, there's no context. And they're often disagreeing with each other and conflicting, mm, right? Sure. And, and it's very clear that the wisdom traditions have not been capable of solving sort of the human problem of, of us understanding how to get along with each other um, in, in a kind way. And so, and so that's maybe a starting point or a context providing sort of background, but there has to be some, some essential parenting, some context, uh, relational context um, that is loving and supportive and, and some way to feel that in the AI. So some way to um, have a motivation towards being supported, a motivation towards being loved, a motivation towards feeling like part of a community that exists within the AI. And um, you know, there's several motivational models that can be used to build that. In loving AI, we used um, something called the SI model, but there's a bunch of different ways to do it and that thing's being rewritten anyway. And hmm. you know, no one knows how to do that. Obviously, we knew how to do that. We could solve a lot of human problems, um, let alone AI problems. <laughs> but it's an exploration, which is why it's interesting. And, and do you think um, on that basis, do you think when... Um, you solve it, let's say, let's presume that you you guys at um, OpenCog have, have made it happen, right? Uh, um, you mean into the future? You're yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, in a couple of, couple of weeks. Um, well, uh, how will we know? How will we know that it is loving? Is there some sort of loving test? I mean, it's almost like an abstract thing in itself, really. Is, 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 is there a definition that you roll with in that way for um, what you think uh, and what you are striving for in this um, loving AI? I think it's kind of like everything else. Um, it's loving if, a, if like 80% of the world's population thinks it's loving. 
So, I mean, we define what, as humans, we define what love is. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the practical definition is, do most people experience it as loving? That's the practical definition. An operational definition that you could access as a, as a third person in a human um, computer or human robot um, experiment. Mostly we've been working with the Sophia humanoid, so, uh, the humanoid robot Sophia from Hanson Robotics yep. as a collaboration. And so sometimes we do uh, robot human experiments. If the, if, if the person reports uh, changes in their experience of unconditionally loving um, people who are outside of themselves and their family. So we have a, a way of asking about people who are um, strangers to them or who might be their doctor, you know, some acquaintances whom they might know, but they're not close with. So if they're consistently reporting sort of changes in that area and other people or are who are interacting in other ways are not reporting those. So there's some kind of a negative control that suggests that the people who are reporting them are responding to something that is inherent in, the, in, in their interaction. Mm-hmm. And the people who aren't reporting that do not have that same thing. And so far, what we've found is that the people who do report those changes are um, having the visual component is really important. Right. So the same interaction in audio does not produce, it produces positive feelings and feelings of pleasantness, but does not produce these experiences of unconditionally loving strangers and our acquaintances, which is very interesting and makes perfect sense. If you think about mirror neurons, you know, you see this, you see this being in front of you that's listening to you and being kind to you and we can program it. So it never has a look of disgust or fear or anger on its face. Mm. Um, and yet at the same time, it mirrors your feelings. So if you are afraid, it will look slightly afraid, but it won't, it won't have its own feelings of fear, disgust, or anger. Right. Um, it won't display those feelings and certainly doesn't have them. It seems like that, that is an indication. But we could, we've also done some work with, um, we have a convolutional neural net that's looking at emotion, real-time emotion detection as people are having these interactions. And you can see the dynamics of the emotions, especially happiness and sadness, seem to be, um, well, at least statistically, are, are very related to people's self-reported um, changes in the, their feelings of unconditional love. In other words, if people have peak experiences, by which I mean either highs or lows in happiness or sadness, as they're having this interaction, they're likely to report increased feelings of unconditional love. It doesn't matter the direction of the feeling they could actually feel more sad but that or at least you know more sad according to our motion detection mm-hmm. um and all that but um still that's getting them these feelings of increases in unconditional love so there's a lot to learn there and a lot to understand but we have at least some legs up on trying to trying to get a grip yeah yeah that's, that's fascinating um, are you are you testing for what people? So I, I'm trying to get to grips with the outcome of the um, uh, experiments themselves. When people were self-reporting, are you tracking how people feel about the interaction, or is it how they feel in uh, and on themselves, and into the future how their behaviour may have changed because of that interaction 
in the way you were talking earlier about having this shepherd idea um, that the, the general intelligence might be able to help us out with, is that, I mean, if that's where we're going, what are you kind of looking at at the moment? Yeah, in those, we said two experiments, I think there were like 25 people in the first experiment, 35 people in the second. So we're just beginning. Hmm. But, um, but we were asking not about their feeling. We did ask a question about their feeling about, about the interaction, but other questions that I'm talking about are more focused on how do you feel right now in relationship to, you know, your doctor? And then we had a definition of unconditional love that we gave, which I won't give here because it's like a paragraph long, but basically it says love without strings attached and no expectation of return. Right. So to what extent do you feel that kind of love, you know, in relationship with your doctor, with the checkout person at the the grocery store, you know, these people who are sort of seemingly inconsequential. And those are the, those are the responses that um, were significantly increased and that correlated with these changes in, in, uh, feelings in terms of behavior clearly one of the next experiments we'd like to do is a behavioral sort of as you leave the room kind of study you know someone says hey you know do you have ten dollars for my charity and see you know see how people respond Mm. in relationship with the emotions they were feeling and the interaction that they had so that would be you know a good next step but right now actually we're backing off of the human computer interaction studies or human robot interaction studies and focusing on getting the ai to be smarter because mm-hmm. we we want to move from a model that's mostly chatbot like to a model that's more um ai driven or more sophisticatedly ai driven yeah and uh, <clears throat> that's a really interesting point actually because uh, i think I've spoken to people in the past and a lot of these um, chatbot-driven systems are, are designed systems with a, a sprinkling of, of natural language processing almost. So there's, yep. there's usually an element of translation and then that translation produces some sort of semantic uh, designed output. Um, mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're starting from there, you're going to be producing a, a larger model which is going to be spewing out Shakespeare or, you know, is it going to be learning from like Tay did with Microsoft? Is it going to be learning from the masses or is it going to be you guys constantly talking to it or just giving it loads of information and, and seeing what it says, that sort of thing? Yeah. So the, it's, um, I think we'll be drawing mostly on, on OpenCog. And by the way, OpenCog has been sort of brought into SingularityNet, you know, the, the company SingularityNet. Right. Uh, do you know about their model? I, I've heard of OpenCog, but not Singularity Net. I don't think. Okay, yeah. So, that, so it's a really interesting idea. I'm just briefly going to describe it. Yep. Because it's worth thinking about. Um, I think it's a, um, it's an IO. It's an internet organization founded by Ben Gertzel, who created OpenCog, and his wish is he's always moving towards artificial general intelligence, and his wish, wish is to um, find a, a way to hook up a bunch of different AIs in a democratized platform. So if you had an AI, you could stick it on this platform and allow it to interact with these other AIs and then give, they have, they think they've solved the give credit where credit is due problem. So that if a particular AI is performing well, it'll get more credit in the system. And essentially someone who creates that AI could actually um, earn money because it's all built on blockchain. And so, but the goal of, of doing this kind of thing is to motivate people to add different kinds of AIs that do different things. You know, some will be neural nets, some will be, you know, symbolic logic, et cetera. And the goal is to create a, um, an AGI that can draw on whatever it needs, when it needs it. 
at, at appropriate times. And so I think it's a really cool idea. And um, they've got some really smart people, a couple of people who left academia to, to uh, go work on this because it's such a cool idea. So anyway, we'll be drawing on singularity net. And so the answer to your questions is yes, yes, yes. Hmm. So it'll be whatever, <laughs> however people are training the AIs that are in there. Yep. And then there will be a specific subset that's focused on loving AI stuff. So we'd filter it. So, so some of that AI wouldn't be appropriate for loving AI. Some of those AIs wouldn't, wouldn't be appropriate or need to be filtered. So we would do that. So there's this sort of a, a content filter and an emo filter, um, not only for the output, but also for the way the input is handled. Yeah. And those come from the interactions that we do, the, the experiments that we do. So it's, it's almost crowdsourcing your, um, interlocking yeah. system <laughs> in a way yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I like that idea i think i mean there's prob there's a lot of activity in this in this realm at the moment so it'd be uh, it's almost like a no-brainer i guess um to go down that route and um i've not heard of um singularity net before but i think it, it sings to a lot of these ideas of um using some way of stamping like you're saying an algorithm with um some sort of ownership like Yep. You know, where's this come from? How, you know, how did thing get produced, trained, etc. Um, yes. So I guess, yeah. I mean, if it solves that problem, then that'd be fantastic. And I will um, surely look at that and uh, maybe stick up uh, some sort of thought uh, dump on the uh, Patreon for that. So uh, stay tuned. But um, that sounds awesome. Um, so, so you spend a lot of your time in your career thinking about the brain and and how humans. Um, operate and and like you're saying how we are these kind of hacked together different processes that are happening in our brain and some of those things are also happening in the rest of our bodies and, and this communication process um, have you got a, a anything that we can kind of tie this kind of messy biological system with what you're creating with the AI and I guess I'm posing that that is one way of doing it but also is there this idea that maybe we should perhaps move away from that or try something else um so i got a little uh uh i got a little um, tangential in my thought process because at the be at the very beginning of ai like in the 80s mm. when when people were talking about all the things they could could only do if they had better processors and we're just doing them now yeah um there were really two camps one was let's use ai to try to understand so ai as a cognitive science tool to try to understand how humans think but there was another camp that said screw that i just want to make really smart machines that could be smart in a different way than humans or they could you know mm -hmm. have nothing to do with the way humans think but let's you know let's try to figure out how to you know solve world hunger using ai or something like this right right so those, those two strands have always existed and there are people who are attracted to one or the other and there are some people who are attracted to both. So um, of course, of course, folks who are pursuing AGI, at least the, the ones who have any kind of possibility of getting there, recognize that um, an actual AGI that, that really, that we consider, that many people consider to be artificially generally intelligent will have to be somewhat like human intelligence or else people won't consider it intelligent, mm -hmm. right? Yep. If what you build is essentially a brick, people won't say that it's intelligent. <laughs> Even you say it has a different kind, it has a brick-like intelligence. It's like, well, okay, but that's kind of not what we mean by intelligence. Yep. So there's some component of it that has to be 
like human intelligence, but also that they uh, also folks in that field know that there's no way that it'll be. The goal is not really to make it exactly like human intelligence, because why? We could just take nine months and you know, um, male and female human, and you could create a human intelligence. So clearly, there's mm-hmm. a desire for something that's beyond that or different from that. And for some people, it's just egoic, like oh, let's see what we can do. Oh, look, we did this. But for most people, I think who take it seriously, it's this opportunity to. Um, try to get problems solved that humans aren't great at solving like longer term problems humans are are pretty crap at thinking long term so if we could make an intelligence that wasn't like human intelligence in that way and was more focused on long-term um, results of decisions that are made now that could be a really positive net positive human impact yeah and i think that's a really a nice way of putting the the intelligence almost in, by saying intelligence implies some way of relational human intelligence so you we're creating something which is bigger than us i guess but hopefully in a way that like you were saying before is going to be in line with how we want to proceed and flourish yes (laughs) um so i guess on that line um have you given much thought to the opposite side of the coin there how i i think so much about the about the positive side, you want me to think about um, how they'll kill us or something? Is that what you're talking about? The opposite uh, side of the coin. Well, I, I, <laughs> I guess. Exactly I mean, I was throwing it open, but I mean, um, I guess it could be that that seems a quite extremist uh, point of view um, that um, yeah. these things are going to come online and then automatically decide that um, we are uh, unnecessary or invalid or whatever it is. Um, but I think. Um, maybe you could also say that, you know, maybe they won't do that, but they will just be, benev- um, you know, ambivalent to us or, you know, there's the other ways of um, of things interacting, I guess. And one of those ways just yeah, be sure. going. I'm, I'm sure some will be. So, so you know, I, I honestly think of them as these are, these are childlike intelligences at first, right? If we're going mm. to make them artificial general intelligence, the, the goal is to make them kind of like a child's intelligence that can learn and be very plastic. And so, you know, some children are uh, uh, jerks and some are, um, <laughs> and some, are, some are great. And I don't see why this would be any different. And I think the, the key is you don't give the kid the keys to the car, right? Until they've proven that they can behave responsibly. Right. So um, you can raise up an AGI that doesn't have, you know, the ability to turn off the electricity grid um, until you've determined that you really trust it. And there's a really good reason to give it that uh, yeah. ability. So if I, ever. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's, you're almost inviting a cheering test for um, the efficacy of the AI at that point. Yeah. Maybe so, right? I mean, I, I think whether we admit it or not, we're always inviting that Turing test. Yeah, that's that's really I interesting. Mean, yeah. Act like we're not, but we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be an interesting position to get to, obviously, but it's it's something that will happen if if that's what you're saying. If if we're developing something which is then going to be nurtured into um, something which is beneficial and and useful for humanity, then. We'll have to work out how we know, you know, when that's the case, I guess. But, the, but I mean, my, but my point is it's not such a difficult problem to solve. We solve it for human children all the time. We do essentially Turing tests on them, right? 
Mm. Like there are some children where we say like, okay, this kid is never going to, um, is never going to become a surgeon, for instance. Right. Like that's not going to happen. But yeah. so we're going to try to help this kid become the best um, uh, at that they can at the job that they can get. Right. Yep. That's essentially applying some kind of an adult adulthood capacity test to that child. Well, so I mean, I mean, I just, I guess I feel like what we're missing here in, in this world, I don't know if it's because the world is filled with so many men. I do not know if this is why mm-hmm. maybe it is, but I feel like we're missing the obvious parallel to parenting and what has been learned about developmental psychology and parenting over the last you know, hundreds of years. And why would we not use what we know about what responsibility means, what, what, what developmental stages are, um, et cetera, in human beings, just the same way we, we use how we think the brain is built and how we think the mind works, how we think intelligence works. Even though the machine intelligence is not the same as the human intelligence, we still try to apply that stuff. Why would we not also try to apply what we know about parenting? It just kind of um, doesn't sit right with me that we would ignore that stuff when that's exactly what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way, I mean, I'm kind of um, playing devil's advocate here again, and and that's how I usually operate. I'm sorry, but um, I guess you don't need to apologize. <laughs> it's like, I guess, like you were saying, some people, some kids are jerks, but I guess some people are jerks as well. So, mm-hmm. I guess yeah, that way we're talking about pulling the plug on things as well. And there's the whole kind of idea of that's okay. I don't know how you feel about um, the kind of how conscious consciousness comes into this whole equation i guess or our human centric version of consciousness well i think we have to be careful and i wasn't talking about pulling the plug so there's a difference Mm. between saying this kid's a jerk we're just going to take him out to the street and shoot him right Mm -hmm. yep and saying this kid's a jerk maybe we don't vote for this kid when he grows up to be president right i mean depending on your country yeah but but I mean, there's a big difference between pulling the plug and um, and deciding what level of responsibility that you'll give a particular person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that same rule would apply here. I think it's very, very clear. So one of the things I study outside of working on AI stuff is time and consciousness. And it's very clear that we have literally no clue how to know whether another human being is subjectively conscious. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we can... I mean, outside of simply giving them general anesthetic and saying, okay, they're not subjectively conscious now or right. killing them or putting them into deep sleep. But when they're, yeah. when they're awake, um, you know, it, there's no way to prove that someone else is conscious. And so how could we possibly know whether a machine is conscious? So I do think we'd, we'd be careful about that. I think there's this idea that intelligence and consciousness are, are related. I think there's some good reasons why people think that it's sort of an intuition we have. Um, because we are probably because in all the states in which we can be intelligent, we are also conscious, but mm-hmm. I don't know that they are actually related in any other way, except for coincidentally. Right. So it's not a necessity that that's the case. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it is. No, but who knows when you were referring to consciousness, uh, were you ref- was it the zombie problem? I think, or yeah, essentially. Yeah. yeah. How do how do I know anyone else? How do I even know I was conscious five minutes ago? How can I even prove that I myself was conscious five minutes ago. I can't. Yeah, you can't objectively to someone else prove that necessarily. 
I can't even prove it to myself. What if it's a false memory? Mm, mm. That's so. I mean, that if that's the case, then you're almost sidestepping this sort of consciousness argument because there's no way of knowing at that point. So it doesn't matter, I guess. No, that's so. So you're making a conclusion. I'm just asking sure. a question. Um, so, but I, I get it, that that's your job. Um, no, I'm just saying. I think we have to be careful, and I yep. think we have. An, I think we have to start trusting our intuition a little bit, but our intuition will also fail us. So I think it, you just sort of have to have in one pocket a little note that says, "Trust your intuition." If you think something's conscious, it might be conscious. So mm -hmm. be ethical, you know, act ethically. And another note that says, um, "Consciousness is uh, everywhere," and um, so one is more circumscribed, and the other is more generous. But if consciousness yeah. is everywhere, what are what? I guess I guess what it comes down to is I'm not sure ethical behavior has anything to do with whether something's conscious. If someone's asleep or under general anesthetic, I don't think it's ethical to kill them in that moment mm -hmm. just because they're not conscious. And I I think of machines that way, just like maybe right now they're not conscious, any kind of AI. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they won't eventually have the capacity, and therefore, does that make it appropriate? I don't think so. Yeah, I guess that you're talking about potential rather than actuality, and, and I guess it's difficult to talk about actuality currently. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, again, that's all because of our biases of consciousness. Mm. So when people talk to Sophia, because she has a face and because she behaves very much like a human in certain circumstances, um, they'll be like, wow, I think she might be conscious, simply mm. because of that, right? That's the intuition. And yep. it's not like she has sophisticated AI that, you know, is making her conscious. It's that she has a face. And so um, we are, and, 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 you know, of course, animals that look more like us, we think are, are more likely to be conscious. So we have this very body, body centric bias of what consciousness is. Mm -hmm. But I, what I'm saying is if you're going to behave ethically towards something, I don't know that you have to know if it's conscious. If your goal is to try to behave ethically towards anything. Yeah. I mean, even I'm sitting in a hammock as I talk to you. Do I need to behave ethically towards my hammock? Um, I, I guess I'd kind of like to on the, on the principle that it's possible everything has a little bit of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's difficult to define what um, ethics looks like for towards a hammock necessarily, if that's not so readily defined, whereas you might have some more definitions for how you might ethically act with a dog or a cat or you know other human beings obviously oh i don't know it seems really easy so i i um so breaking my hammock um in a fit of rage mm -hmm. not treating it well seems uh ethically unwise so i mean it's to me it doesn't seem difficult if you assume everything has a little bit of consciousness it seems like you treat it kindly you know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just weird. It's it's not difficult. It's just weird. Yeah, but I guess what I'm implying is that it's maybe kindness for you towards, but other people's kindness towards that hammock are not necessarily implied um, by the hammock, yeah, essentially. Yeah, so that's if you decide that um, ethical um, interactions are all about behavior. Right. So the behaviors might be different. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's really important to think about is um, behavior is one thing and it's operational and yada yada and a third person can look at it and say yes I see yep. that behavior but there's also a, feel, a felt sense 
of compassion that is cross-cultural and that is not dependent um, on how a culture expresses something. It is just a feeling. And when I say just, I shouldn't say just because feelings are the, the basis of all those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, what is at base the most ethical interaction is a feeling of kindness, a feeling of unconditional love, of compassion, whatever it is with which you are interacting. Mm-hmm. So that feeling is, we sort of, uh, I sort of feel like behaviors are the booby prize, but we focus on them <laughs> because we're, we're so con- we're so convinced that that the inner state doesn't matter, but the inner state matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I almost I feel like kids know this. When you raise kids, when adults who are really disturbed um, raise children, if they have feelings of love for the child, even though their behavior is disturbed, the child can feel that feeling, and that matters uh, hugely in the development of the child. So I'm not saying the behavior doesn't matter, but I'm saying that the capacity for the child to feel the inner state um, of the parents also matters. So I'm just saying that inner state, that qualia, that subjective experience, or I should say those qualia of a human being matter as a, as a aspect of ethics. It's not just behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, this is sort of like a sidestep, but there's a lot of talk in, in um, AI and these sorts of neural networks and things like this um, about transparency. And, and maybe I'm kind of conflating maybe feelings and things internal as uh, being at the moment quite opaque in, in this um, research. Um, so do you think when we're creating these things, it's sort of paramount that eventually they were maybe have a opaque inner workings, but that they there's some way of interrogating that or um, inferring that internal workings from their behavior, maybe, or uh, I don't know if there's something. You're trying to solve the problem of um, behaviorism. So uh, behaviorism, which has dominated sort of scientific culture for the last 100 years, mm-hmm. says that it doesn't exist if we can't see the behavior. So you're trying to be like, well, okay, so there's this interstate, but how do we know there's the interstate? Yes. We know the interstate because we are human beings and we experience the interstate. In fact, it's the only thing we ever experience. And we have to actually infer everything that goes on outside of us. Yeah. So it's just that behaviorism has essentially poisoned our thinking to make us think that all that is valid is what we can see on the outside when in fact, all that we actually know comes from our inner experience and everything else is inferred. So it's just switching completely the worldview in the opposite direction that I think is required. So only that. Only that's all we need. <laughs> don't worry about all, the rest. That's all we need. <laughs> I don't see the problem. But. Yeah. So in relation to uh, an artificial version of this, do you think that's something that's just implied? That's how it's going to have to work, basically? Um, With it, it's some sort know. of inner I, I state, think... some some sort of inner working, which is... Yeah, I think there has to be a sense in which, just like we do with other human beings, we sense without having the visual interaction, but because that visual visual interaction will always trip us up and make us think one thing or another, depending Mm -hmm. on our likeness, where we sense that this thing is conscious. And and that has to basically, that's almost an intuition. and, And that will be the only indicator that really makes sense, I think. Right. So particularly unquantifiable, um, let's say? No, I think, again, inner states are totally quantifiable. I, I can, 
It's just that we insist that they aren't. So like if you work at, look at the world of psychophysics, which, for, which basically took the world of the inner state, the science of the inner state, and turned it into something that could be tolerated during the behaviorist era, mm-hmm. um, you have the most replicable data in all of psychology. And it's all about what is the inner state. And it's simply asking people questions about take this dial and turn it to the level of pain that you experience when I poke you with this, you know, stick mm-hmm. right. <laughs> right? or whatever it is. So yeah, no, it's totally quantifiable. It's okay. just that it doesn't follow the behaviorist rules. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, that's really good. Um, so um, the last question we always ask everyone is what really excites you in this world of AI or the future world of AI and what possibly scares you as well? Ah, good question. Yeah. So what's, what excites me is all the stuff I've been talking about using, essentially creating a way to, in this world where we are getting more and more violent, um, a way to create um, some kind of culture that's sort of outsources our, <laughs> outsources our knowledge about and wisdom about how to be compassionate with each other and unconditionally loving to a platform that can survive um, generations of violence and that then can help reparent us into connection with each other and actually teach us more than we knew before about that Mm -hmm. so that's what excites me what scares me is um the hubris that um that kind of thought uh entails so (laughs) i mean my own hubris the hubris of the people who um think that ai will be like a savior that's um of course a scary thought just like thinking Mm -hmm. any human being would be like that you just what, what do, never works is to think that one thing is going to be the answer, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that kind of hubris always leads to just disaster. So I want to make sure that, that at least when I'm working on it, it's clear that um, this would be maybe a part of the solution, but um, there is no one solution and, and the human condition as it is, is beautiful and um, can potentially be improved, but does not have to be improved for us to appreciate who we are and, and how we are. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so if people would like to um, follow you into that future of good AI and, and, and not Messiah AI, um, how would they <laughs> follow you and, and, and get in contact with you or, or uh, just check out uh, maybe some of the things you're doing with um, uh, loving, loving AI? Sure. Um, lovingai.org. And that's the best way. Great. And there's a, a little contact form there, so not a big deal. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you, Julia, so much for your time. Um, I would love to speak to you more. Um, if I'm in the States, I'll, I'll drop you a line, maybe. Um, but yeah. thank you very much for your time today, and um, I will speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Julia for this truly fascinating chat. Um, I really enjoyed talking about the ethical side and the psychological side of um, how AI in the future and um, the whole idea of intuition and um, almost a kind of pithy idea from Julia that some of these things um, could be easy and that we just have to kind of um, use the things that we already know. Uh, like parenting for example Um, I would love to talk to Julia some more but hopefully we can do some more in the future also the idea of the Turing test for AI I thought was a really uh, fun idea 
If you'd like to hear some more of my thoughts, then check us out on the Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. And thanks again for listening. If you'd like to share and review this podcast, it would really help us out. And of course, get in contact with us, anything about AI and the future of society. So thank you very much for your time.